title of the sermon this morning, Fasting in the Church. I was going to move on to Luke 3, but I have a request to make of our church. Heading into Keegan's surgery a week from Tuesday, I was wanted to request that our church spend time next weekend in prayer and fasting for him. And as we, uh, I, I'm going to request that of you, I understand that uh, fasting is not something that's taught very often. It may not be well understood among God's people. And I desire it to be understood before I ask you to take part in it. So this morning I'm going to deviate from our typical sermon schedule in order to, tell, to teach you about fasting. This topic would have come up fairly soon anyway as we're coming to a point in David's life in our evening series in 2 Samuel where he is going to be in a time of fasting and prayer. I'm going to reference that this morning, not teach on the passage, and then I'll go in a little bit different direction in a couple of weeks in our evening service when I teach through 2 Samuel 12, beginning in verse 15. But today we're going to talk about that a little bit. Fasting is a concept which still finds a place in the Christian world today, though the Christian world by and large maybe doesn't recognize it and doesn't necessarily always do it in in the right biblical way. Way, It's a topic which deserves our attention, and it's an exercise which deserves our observance. Nowhere in the Bible is fasting explicitly commanded to believers, but it is my hope that by the end of our time together today, it will be a practice that you will recognize as something that is right, good, healthy, and that you would choose to partake in. So we're going to ask some simple questions this morning. And we're going to go to the scriptures to find our answers. The topic of fasting comes up 32 separate times, 32 separate contexts in the scriptures throughout the Bible. And by comparing these one to another, obviously we can't do them all. Obviously this will not be an in-depth study into fasting. I'm going to kind of give you uh, what I can. It's uh, kind of a ready-made meal. Uh, You don't have to cook it. You don't have to prepare it. You throw it in the microwave. It's ready to go. heats up quick, you eat it, but you know that maybe it wasn't as good as if you'd have just boiled the water and, and, and done it yourself, right? So, so I'm going to do what I can in the time I have today. It could be a series. You should perhaps spend some time doing a little more study on it, but I trust that today you'll gain a good understanding of it. Understanding the character of fasting, understanding the purpose of fasting, and understanding uh, how we ought to fast this morning. So the first question I'm going to ask, we are going to ask together this morning, what is fasting. What is fasting? Uh, Fasting is as much a cultural consideration as it is a biblical one. We don't see instructions in the Bible regarding fasting. You don't see a place where the Bible says this is a fast, this is what it is, this is how you do it. It's just kind of there. Fasting is just kind of there. And the Bible seems to take for granted that its readers understand what a fast is And in reality, this is quite appropriate. Almost every culture, as you look into cultures, every culture in some way incorporates fasting into its operation. Now, Western culture has kind of lost it, but that's a a fairly new thing, um, that that Western culture. And now it's coming in as a part of a diet plan. But Western culture has, has, has... kind of left fasting out as we've become irreligious or uh, lack uh, of any sort of religious devotion. But, but in any place where there is any sort of religious devotion, you will typically find fasting somewhere in the, the range of, of religious practices. Fasting is, in its purest sense, withholding from oneself 
food for a period of time, but really it goes beyond that. And if, if I could associate one concept with fasting in the what is fasting question, it would be this, denying the flesh. Fasting is denying the flesh. We see examples many times of fasting, and typically we do see in the Bible fasting related directly to food. And I told you about 2 Samuel 12 already. That's where we're going to start this morning. We see in 2 Samuel 12, David fast when his son, who was conceived with Bathsheba through the adultery whereby he murdered her husband Uriah, that son is now sick, and God has condemned that son to die for David's sin. We'll talk about that on an evening service. How can God do that? Is God punishing the innocent for the, for the actions of the guilty? We'll talk about all of that on Sunday evening in a couple of weeks. But in verses 16 and 17, David's son is very sick, and we read this. David, therefore, besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth, and the elders of his house arose and went to him and raised him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And so we immediately see the correlation between David's fasting and him refusing to eat. He was in a period of fasting, and so he remained on his knees, perhaps on his stomach, on his face, in prayer unto God. He would not get up. He would not eat. But then we notice something different, interesting, about when the child dies. The child dies... And when the child dies, David ceases his fast. And when he ceased his fast, he began to eat again. In verses 19 through 23, we read this. But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed himself and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came in, uh, into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. Do you see the contrast? Fasting, when the fasting ended, eating started. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David fasted, and as a part of that fasting, he did not eat. And that's, that's what I want you to see from this this morning. Because this first point is what is fasting. We're seeking to define it. And as we define it biblically, we see that fasting comprises a, a concept of not eating, typically, as we see it in the scriptures. And it teaches us why we should fast. It teaches us how we should fast. We'll come back to those in a little bit. He did not eat. When the child has died, there was no longer a need to fast, for his petition had been refused. That which he was seeking the Lord for had been refused. So the fast was over. He began to eat again. He washed himself. He worshipped the Lord. He ate his food. We also see a correlation between fasting and eating in the New Testament. With our Lord Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Matthew 4, 2, the Bible says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungered. 
Jesus fasts for 40 days. He fasts for 40 nights. At the end of his fast, he was hungry. What's the implication there? His fast was comprised him not eating any food. And there is, however, some biblical precedent. It would seem that fasting could have been more limited in its scope, whereby it's not just that a man withheld himself from all foods, but perhaps only certain foods. We might say pleasantries or luxuries. Daniel did this in Daniel chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. This would have been later on in Daniel's life, after Nebuchadnezzar was now off the scene. Uh, the Babylonian Empire had been, had been overthrown by the Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. In the third year of Cyrus, the text tells us, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. So as Daniel receives this vision, he understands the vision. He understands the implications of the vision. He sees that the vision is going to be a long way off. He goes into a period of mourning. And as a part of this mourning, and we'll see the connection between mourning and fasting in our next point, he begins to fast. He understands the sins of his people. He understands what will befall them in the, le- the last days. And as a part of this fast, instead of denying himself all food, we don't know why he did not deny himself all food. Maybe at this point his age was catching up to him and he knew he couldn't handle that. Or maybe it was because of the length with which he wanted to fast. And you, know, you can't fast for three weeks. I would not recommend that. Um, because of those particular things, maybe, um, he decided, I'm going to set aside the pleasantries, the luxuries those parts of my position, the privileges of my position, having all of these nice foods and these good foods as, a, as the chief of the wise men in, per, in the Persian Empire. And instead, I am going to deny myself those pleasures for a time. Denying himself luxury. So he denies himself, he says, pleasant bread, what we might call today pastries, flesh, so meat, wine, And he did not anoint himself. So he did not anoint himself with oils. He did not um, go through the rituals that wealthy people would have done in order to look good, smell good. Right? He didn't do that. He denied himself those things that would normally appeal to his body and his flesh. So that he could devote himself to something else. One more principle that I'd like to round out our concept of fasting before we kind of bring it together. 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is teaching the believers about the relationship between men and women. And he begins by saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, if he cannot, if he cannot suppress his desire, his, his desire for physical intimacy, let him marry. And within this context, Paul states an obligation that husbands and wives have to each other to fulfill that need for physical intimacy. That you cannot and must not withhold from your spouse physical intimacy. And he gives one exception to that rule. It's a temporary exception. In verse 5, he says this, Defraud ye not one another, one the other, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your in." 
incontinency or inconsistency there. Paul indicates that during a time of fasting and prayer, it would be expected that a person would not only withhold from himself the bodily urge to eat, but that he would suppress every urge of the body, every fleshly, worldly, physical urge, including that with physical intimacy, for a time within the context and with consent one of another. And in this we find a principle, as we put it all together, that the point of a fast is not exclusively about food, but rather it's about denying the body, denying the flesh, to focus on the spirit or to focus upon the spiritual. What is fasting? Our most basic answer is that we are withholding from ourselves the needs and desires of the physical body for a period of time in order to focus ourselves exclusively upon the spiritual. Denying the physical in order to focus and heighten the spiritual. As we'll see, this is only an outward manifestation, though. It's only an outward manifestation of something internal, something much, much bigger. Withholding oneself from physical needs is a means by which we subdue the flesh and allow the focus of our lives to be diverted to that of the Spirit. It's it's a means of, of telling God, the flesh is not important to me. It's a means of echoing the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ, when he was tempted in the wilderness. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God shall he live. Jesus Christ quoting from there the Old Testament. It's us saying, God, there's something more important, there's something more needful than even me fulfilling the urges of my body, fulfilling the compulsions of my body. It's a means of exercising the higher part of our nature, the spiritual part. When you want to exercise your physical nature, what do you do? You go for a jog, go chop some wood, go to the gym, go for a walk, tear down a cabin and put it back up. All sorts of things, right? To exercise the physical. How do we exercise the spiritual? What do we do to keep the spiritual fit? Well, we read our Bibles every day, we pray. We memorize scripture. We fast. We strengthen the spiritual by denying the physical. We withhold and reject those urges and those distractions of the world in order to spend a time in spiritual boot camp. So our next question, and we'll continue to round out our understanding as we answer it, why fast? What is fasting? Fasting is the denying of the flesh, the physical urges, in order to pursue the spiritual. Why fast? Why would we do such a thing? Why is it that we see examples all throughout the scripture of people fasting? What motivates them to do this? What were they hoping to accomplish? What what, what was the intended goal? Well, as we consider the concept of fasting, we can... We can break the motivations down into one of several primary considerations. I won't necessarily reflect them all today, um, but I'm going to reflect perhaps what we might call the primary one. Several related concepts. The overarching concept is this. 
The overarching concept with, which undergirds the practice of fasting is that of fasting being an appeal to God in humble mourning. And you're going to see this. As we go through each motivation, it will always come back to the concept of mourning. Now, mourning is a sorrow, but it doesn't necessarily have to mean that something bad has happened. And we'll talk about that. Mourning is a much more broad concept that, that we need to understand. It is an expression of grief and of sorrow, but for the purpose of communicating a desire unto the Lord. That our physical actions are communicating a spirit of insistency, of desire unto the Lord that he would act, that he would do something, that he would move in our midst. It's an expression of humility toward God wherein we reflect to him a grief of spirit, a grief of mind with the desire that he would bring about the circumstances that would change our grief into joy, that would change our sorrow into gladness. And grief and sorrow is not always a result, as I mentioned, of bad things happening to us. Grief is an expression of desire for something which is missing, something which is gone. When my wife, there's been a few times where she's had to go out of town or I've had to go out of town, and there's a grief there. She's gone, and there I am microwaving that frozen pizza for dinner, and there's, there's a, a separation, and there's a grief there. There's, there's something missing. There's, there's a, a, a separation that I don't want to be there. Now, I can still be happy, and I can still call her on the phone and talk and have, have, you know, get things done and all of that, but, but there's, there's something in my spirit. There's something missing. There's a, a grief. Not always a result of a tragic circumstance. A perception that something is not as it should be or as we believe it should be. And that creates an out-of-balance feel in our spirit. Things aren't as they should be. And fasting as an outworking of mourning is an expression of that. We all express grief in different ways. Our, our motivations for doing so are varied. We, we grieve during situations of hardship. We mourn for guidance when we are unsure or when we're lost. We sorrow for those who are absent from us. Even in times where we're not exhibiting outward signs of sorrow, there can yet be an inward longing, an emotional grief for something or someone that it's just, it's just not right or it's not there. It, there's something that is missing. And th that's the idea. That's, that's the undergirding foundation of fasting. It has a feel of mourning. And we can draw this correlation from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 and 15, we read this. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, often, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. You see the correlation? Jesus, they ask Jesus about fasting, and Jesus says, should they mourn? Correlation between fasting and mourning. The disciples of John question Jesus on why the disciples don't fast. In Jewish religious culture, fasting was a regular event. As a matter of fact, the most religious among them would fast every week. They would fast at least a day a week. And then they would have fastings during the feast, just before the feasts. And then they would have fastings, uh, special fasts, uh, during some of the other holidays during the year. 
They were fasting quite often. Jesus immediately connects the concept of fasting with that of mourning and states that it would be inappropriate to assume a posture of mourning unto God for any particular circumstance while God is present with them. Do I need to reflect to God in heaven this mourning and this, this appeal when the bridegroom is right here with us? When I can just look to the physical Christ and say, Christ, I have this need. Christ, I have this longing. That's not to say that these disciples would never experience sorrow. But rather, the outward expression of sorrow with the intent of touching the heart of God is not necessary when God himself is there. They need not fast to touch the heart of God when the heart of God dwells among them. So fasting is an outward, humble mourning unto God. And notice what Jesus said. When I leave, they will fast. Well, remember, Jesus told them, it's expedient that I go away. For when I go away, then the comforter can come. And then we've memorized in our verse this month, in John 14, 27, Jesus said, when the comforters come, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He's saying the Holy Spirit will come, and then you can have peace. And yet he also says, when, when I leave, there will be fasting. There will be mourning. Don't miss that part about it being unto God. Jesus' words reflect a general understanding that God's presence among them meant their appeals to God could be to him. But when he leaves, their appeals would resume in the common manner of man, which is prayer and fasting. So we regard fasting as having a direct purpose. And our expression of humble mourning will touch the heart of God. Now, as we consider the concept, we see throughout the scriptures many contexts within which this, the overarching concept is found. The overarching concept of appeal to God in humble mourning. And the first that we see is mourning over circumstances. This is the first and foremost concept that we could think of when we consider mourning, when we consider fasting. A sorrow or grief, a longing based upon a difficult circumstance within which we find ourselves. Nehemiah gives us a good example of this in Nehemiah 1. We read in verses 1 through 4 the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. And it came to pass in the month Kislu, in the 12th year, 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that would have been the capital of the Medo Persian Empire, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity. So he goes up to Hananiah, his brother, and he says, How are the Jews doing? They've escaped there. They, they, they're no longer in captivity. They're, they're in Jerusalem again. How are they doing? And concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words, Nehemiah says, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Mourning, fasting. Nehemiah is in a state of great sorrow over the condition of his people and the condition of the city of Jerusalem. I have preached through Nehemiah. That is all online if you want to go through that series. He was a cupbearer for the king of Persia and heard that the walls of Jerusalem had been burned to the ground 
and this set of circumstances brought him to a place of sorrow. There's something wrong. This is God's city. These are God's people. God, there's something wrong. What can I do? And it led him to fasting and prayer, mourning for his people before the Lord. And it's important to note that along with this mourning over circumstance, if you were to continue in the context, you would find that Nehemiah is actually about to make an appeal unto the king that he could go back and build the wall. And so this mourning and this prayer and this fasting is not just a circumstance, but it will also become an appeal to God. And that's going to be our, uh, another point. But we often see that connected to fasting as well. The second general concept that we see for fasting, the context within which we fast, is mourning over sin. When a man or a group realizes their sinfulness before the Lord and they afflict their souls in mourning for their sin with the intent of seeking mercy from God. In 1 Samuel 7, verse 6, we read this. Excuse me, verses 3 through 6. Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord. And serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mitzpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mitzpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. So as they respond to the reality of their sin and they are seeking the mercy of the Lord by the prayer of Samuel the prophet, what they did is they brought water and they poured it out before the Lord, which is a sign of humility, giving unto the Lord that which is His, and then they fasted. They afflicted their souls. They withheld from themselves the pleasures of the body, of the flesh, in order that they might pursue the needs of the Spirit. We also see this in the days of Jonah. Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. And Jonah began to enter the city, that would be the city of Nineveh, right? A day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, and what did they do when they believed God? And proclaimed a fast. This is a pagan people. This is one of the most brutal people groups that have ever walked the earth. This is the Assyrian Empire, the capital of Assyria. They proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, eat anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, no food nor water, not even our animals. But let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger and we perish not? This pagan nation, having heard of God's wrath, fasts and prays unto God. Now in David's case, in 2 Samuel 12, he fasts. God does not regard his plea, the child dies. In Nineveh's case, they fast and God shows them mercy. And God does not destroy the, the city because of their humility before him. 
The third concept as we hasten on this morning. First, mourning over circumstances. Second, mourning over sin. Third, mourning over or for guidance. This has been apparent throughout the examples that we've seen already. The idea that, that fasting is intended to petition God directly for his help and guidance. For God to intervene in the circumstances of man. That fasting is a humble and mournful admission of our inability, our need for God to guide us into His will and His way. You can't control the circumstances, so you fast in order to remind God, you, and everyone around you that only God can control the circumstances. And so we fast. It reflects a deep desire for God's will to be done above our own, for God to work in these circumstances that we can't control. It's beyond our control. We, have, we don't know what to do, but God does, and God needs to know how important it is, that we, it is to us and, and how much we are, we are willing to place this in His hands. Tremendous examples of this in the early church. The commission of Paul and Barnabas to go to the Gentile world, Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, that would be Paul, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they are fasting and ministering unto the Lord, and the Spirit of God speaks to them and says, Separate Saul Paul and Barnabas. <clears throat> and then after, <coughs> excuse me, after they received that communication of the Lord, then the scriptures tell us they fasted and prayed some more, and then they commissioned them and sent them. Acts 14, the next chapter, we see it again. And when they, that would be Paul and Barnabas, so Paul and Barnabas are now planting churches. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So as they're going back to the churches, they see those who the Lord has, has clearly marked out to be the elders among them. They ordain them as elders. And as a part of that process of ordaining the leaders of the church, they prayed and they fasted together over that. Fasted for God's blessing. Fasted for God's guidance. Fasted for, for, for God's power and will to be done in that church. For the guidance necessary to make these important decisions. Mourning over circumstances, mourning over sin, mourning for guidance, and then the final one that we'll consider this morning, there might be a few others that we could talk about if we had time, but the last one we'll consider this morning, mourning for victory. We find an interesting account during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He had commissioned his disciples to go out on a couple of occasions, first 12 and then 70, to go out and to cast out demons and to do great miracles in his name and to preach the gospel. And they had come back several times rejoicing, recognizing the power that they had through Christ's name, uh, the power over the demons. They would say, even the demons submit to us through thy name, Lord. 
And in Matthew 17, we find an interesting circumstance, verses 14 to 21. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him, that would be to Jesus, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is, a, he is lunatic and sore vexed. He has mental health issues, we would call them today. For oft times he falleth into the fire, and oft into the water, and I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil. His mental health was connected to a demonic possession. Jesus rebuked the devil, and that devil departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. So the disciples try to cure him, try to cast out this demon. It doesn't work. The man brings his son to Jesus, says, my, my son has these issues. Jesus casts the devil out of him, and he's cured on the spot. His mind is restored. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto him, unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, If ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence from yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit, he says, This kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Here Jesus connects their lack of faith to their unwillingness to pray and fast. Here Jesus says, you couldn't cast them out because of your lack of faith. This one goes not out but by prayer and fasting. This particular demon was resistant to the disciples' power even as they came in the name of Christ. We don't have time to get into all the spiritual implications of that, but it's sufficient to say that while this demon resisted the power of the disciples, they certainly could not resist the power of the Son of God. And Jesus says the reason why they could not cast him out, their lack of faith. And he said, if you wanted to cast this one out, it would have taken prayer and fasting. In order to appeal to God to do for you this great thing, in order to bring God deeper into the circumstance, you would have needed prayer and fasting. Now, as we've considered all of these examples, we find more to substantiate that which we've already claimed. Fasting is an exercise of the spirit. It involves subduing, we might say ignoring or starving, our flesh with the purpose of focusing all of our energies upon the spiritual, that we might touch the heart of God to work in a way that we cannot. And as we have read, we find many scriptural examples, both Old and New Testaments, of God's heart being touched and great things happening. It's not a guarantee. 2 Samuel 12 shows us that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But we've seen God's heart be touched as men have come before him in fasting. In response to man's pleas, we read that God was receptive. What is fasting? Denial of the flesh in order to focus on the spirit. Why fast? Well, many reasons. Circumstances. Sin. Guidance, victory. Third question. How to do it? 
How do we fast? Well, we understand in its most basic form to be a time where we withhold from ourselves the needs of the flesh and specifically that of food. Oftentimes, uh, however, in our culture, um, food is not the only or perhaps even the best way to focus on the spiritual, is it? Oftentimes, the things which feed our flesh the most from day to day, are it's not just the food that we eat. What about all of the distractions that keep you away from the spiritual? What about the things that keep you away from your prayer and your Bible reading on any given day? The things that keep you away from evangelism and door knocking and those things? What about the television and internet? What about the smartphone or the video games? What about the boat? What about the other toys, amusements? During a time of fasting, the point is that we are denying the flesh in deference to the spirit. A fast will likely need as much of the denial of the fleshly appetites when it comes to the distractions of modern society as it would need the denial of food. We're a society that cannot focus anymore. It's really a miracle that you can sit down and listen to me for 45 to 50 minutes on a Sunday morning. It is. People can't sit through that without a scene change, right? Without perspective changes. If we had a screen up here so that we could have cameras changing every eight seconds, like on television, maybe it'd be easier. So you could get a perspective change. Maybe have a commercial break every once in a while. But we, we don't focus well anymore. And why don't we focus anymore? Because we have these things buzzing in our pockets. Because there's always something new to read on Facebook, on Twitter. Because there's always something on the television that's new. There's a thousand channels. There's an uh, entire internet out there. All of the world's information at our fingertips at any given moment of the day. We're driving and there's billboards and there's signs and there's advertisements catching your attention all the time. Driving demands your attention. You're going at 50, 60, 70 miles an hour. You've got to pay attention. You can't just drift off into nowhere. Let your mind meditate on something. If, if, if we're going to slow down and focus, we have to purpose it, right? You have to build it into your day nowadays. And so as one considers a fast, I don't believe anymore we can just fast by withholding from ourselves food. I don't know that that would actually accomplish the spiritual purpose that we would seek anymore in this kind of a culture. I believe that in order to fast properly in our culture, you would have to remove from yourself the distractions and amusements of that culture as well. There are some practical considerations which I believe are very important for fasting. And I'm, I'm preaching this message because I'm going to be encouraging our church to fast next weekend. On the back table, there's a half sheet of paper right next to the new newsletter for the month. When you get that new newsletter, grab that sheet as well. It gives you practical considerations for fasting. Things to think about. Ways to help our young children, because we're not going to ask our young children to go without food for a long period of time. Uh, things to do if you have medical needs and you can't withhold your, certain foods or whatever the case may be. Uh, things to consider. Uh, ways to protect yourself and then ways to ease in and ease out. Since we're particularly not a culture that, that regularly fasts, bodies would need to adjust. 
That's not doctrinal stuff. That's just practical stuff, and I encourage you to take one of those sheets. However, there are a couple of warnings, doctrinal warnings in Scripture that I'd like for you to, in the sermon context, understand this morning as it relates to fasting. We're going to consider two warnings. Warning number one, and this has to do with all spiritual things, but um, fasting is part of it. Warning number one, fasting is not spiritual manipulation. God doesn't do things for us just because we don't eat food. Okay? God cannot be manipulated into doing things outside of his will or against his character just because we don't eat. Don't say, well, God, I fasted, so now you have to. It's the same thing we kind of talked about in praying in Jesus' name, right? People say, Jesus, I prayed in your name, so now you have to. And that's why we defined what it was to come in Jesus' name. And that it's not just invoking J-E-S-U-S in your prayer. Fasting is not spiritual manipulation, and God cannot be manipulated into doing that which is outside of his will or outside of his character simply because we're fasting. And in fact, that's not even fasting. Not eating or withholding from yourself some element of the flesh an outward manifesta- is an outward manifestation of an inward determination to elevate the spiritual at the expense of the physical. If your heart is far from God, which trying to manipulate God into action is a heart that's far from God, If your heart is far from God, if your spirit does not assume a position of humility, of mourning, then even if you've withheld yourself from food, God will not regard that. There won't be any spiritual power there. That's a diet. That's not a fast. We read an example. We read several examples, in fact. I'm not going to have you turn to them today for sake of time, or I'm not going to put them up on the screen. But if you want to write them down and study them yourself, Isaiah 58 and Jeremiah 12 are both examples where God sees the people fasting and he says, I will not regard your fast. You are fasting for the wrong reasons. You, you don't have the right motivation. It's not doing you any good. And by the way, God says the same thing to Israel about their sacrifices and about their prayers in various points in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Micah, Malachi. But there's a second warning we find in Scripture as well, and I am going to show you the Scripture on this. So first, fasting is not spiritual manipulation. But the second warning, fasting is not for attention or for praise. Let's allow the scriptures to speak for themselves. Jesus Christ teaching on the topic of fasting in Matthew 6 to a Jewish audience that fasted regularly. He said, moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Just as with prayer, just as with giving, just as with all of these elements of God's, of worship unto God, God wants the heart. Jesus tells us here that the reward for a man who fasts in order to be seen of men, to be thought of as godly, to get the praise of others, is simply that. His reward is that praise. You've gotten your reward already. People have looked at you and said, wow, you're something special. Congratulations, you got your reward. God will not reward you for that. But the ones who God will reward are those whom, for whom fasting is a spiritual endeavor. Not for the sake of attention. Not for the sake of others knowing or seeing. Not disfiguring your face so that somebody comes up and says, Oh, what's wrong? Oh, I'm fasting. 
Oh, don't worry about me. I'll be okay. Oh. Uh-uh. He says, clean yourself up. Make yourself look as good as you can. Don't let anyone know you're fasting. Don't let them even think you're fasting. And the Father, which sees in secret, will reward you openly. He says the same thing about prayer. And remember, that's, 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 a, that's a spiritual concept. That doesn't mean we can't pray publicly, right? I don't have to step into a closet every time I want to pray. But the concept is I'm not praying. When I pray, when I lead that prayer on Sunday mornings, and when others lead the prayer Sunday night, and when we get together for prayer groups on Tuesday nights, we're not praying to each other or for each other. We're praying to God. That's, that, that's why we pray. We pray for each other, but not... Pray for the sake of one another, but not for the attention of one another, if you get what I'm saying. We cannot manipulate God. We cannot seek God's favor with a heart of pride. Fasting is by character a humble endeavor and must be approached in a way of humility if we want to find any success. So what is fasting? It's a humble appeal to God for his intervention in our lives, manifest by denying the needs and desires of the flesh and focusing upon the energies of the spirit. We take the time which, have, which would have otherwise been given to these fleshly pursuits where you'd normally be eating and you'd normally be watching television and you'd normally be surfing the internet and you give that time to prayer, to scripture reading, to meditation, to humility before God. We fast because all throughout scripture, not only do we find the practice of fasting as common among the righteous, But we also see it as an exercise of spiritual power, which God's people have needed in order to bring about spiritual circumstances, spiritual success, physical success. Fasting is exemplified in the greatest of the righteous examples of the Bible. It's done regularly. It was done regularly in the early church. Jesus taught on fasting. He told the disciples of John that after he left, his followers would fast. So fasting is something which we, in today's church, I don't believe ought to ignore. Or we ought to consider lightly. It's a spiritual exercise of tremendous importance and benefit to the local church. I believe it's a necessary link to certain aspects of the power of God. And I believe to ignore fasting is to ignore this link. And would be foolish of us. 